Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The United States and the Soviet Union were allies during World War II, but when they became rivals after 1945, they were unwilling to risk nuclear war, so they confined themselves to political warfare. George Kennan wrote that it meant the employment of all the means at a nation's command, short of war, to achieve its national objectives. In the Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare in 1945-2010, Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winner Tim Weiner describes the worldwide competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, later Russia, in the 75 years since the end of the Second World War. It's published by Henry Holt, and it brings Tim, Tim Weiner to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Good to have you here. You say that although the United States effectively won the Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, Russia is winning today. Did that begin when Putin took power in 2000? Yes, several things happened at the turn of the 21st century. Vladimir Putin, a career KGB officer, uh, was not happy about the collapse of the Soviet Union. He called it the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Strong competition for that title, but that's how Putin thought. The United States had succeeded in the Cold War, not with uh, soldiers, armies, nuclear weapons, but by being able to project its power through its image of American democracy. It sold American democracy as a better form of government than Soviet communism. The ability of the United States to project the power of American democracy was greatly diminished by the prosecution of the war on terror, by secret prisons, torture, targeted killings, and the like. The number of democracies in the world had been climbing ever since World War II, and around 2003 or four, the number of democracies in the world was equal to the number of autocracies and totalitarian governments in the world. That had never happened in human history. The number of democracies in the world has been declining ever since because of America's inability to project the image of American democracy as a potent tool of political warfare. Today, we are failing democracy, in part because Vladimir Putin helped put Donald Trump in the White House in the greatest triumph of political warfare since the Trojans took in that horse. You cite a, a trove of declassified material from the Cold War. Has everything been declassified by now? Good God, no. <laughs> Even though some of it is very old, we're talking about a 75-year span. You know, Leonard, when I uh, was young back in the 20, 20th century and starting out covering the CIA, uh, I tried to determine, this was in 1991 as the Cold War was ending, what the oldest classified document in the American archives was, and it dated from 1917. Oh, boy. Yep. Well, you go ahead. Uh, it was about the movement of troops during World War One. 
which at that point had been over for more than 70 years. Um, for example, uh, conversations uh, uh, the United States was having with the Soviets uh, during the Reagan administration remained classified. Uh, uh, so that's now going back 35 years. Uh, no, uh, but I, I am confident that there are no secrets that time will not reveal. You cover a number of landmark events dating back to the beginnings of the Cold War rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States. Did that begin with the creation of the Marshall Plan and, and NATO? Well, we're going back now. Let's turn the clock back to 1948. Mm -hmm. um, the Soviet Union had taken Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, uh, and East Germany, of course. Uh, the United States had just created its first peacetime intelligence service, the CIA. So there was an election coming up in Italy, and uh, it looked like the communists might win at the ballot box. So the newborn CIA went into that battle and using the most effective weapon of American covert action ever invented, money, <laughs> uh, helped win the Italian election for the conservative Christian Democrats, uh, working with the Vatican, uh, working with uh, a number of political action committees uh, that it had created, uh, and with a little help from La Cosa Nostra. So that became a template for uh, CIA covert operations uh, throughout the Cold War. They felt, and of course the CIA and the Pentagon and the White House also felt that using the CIA, we could change the course of history. If we could swing an election, perhaps we could undo the result of an election, change a regime. And so off they went. Now the Soviets tended to use blunt force uh, to capture nations. Uh, crushing uh, the aspirations of people in uh, Hungary, for example, in 1956, and in Czechoslovakia in 1968. Then uh, Germany, East Germany. And East Germany, of course, in 53 and onward. Um, so political warfare is, as George Kennan said, all the means at the na a nation's disposal short of war to project its power and to blunt uh, its enemies and uh, roll back their power. Uh, how, much how much influence did George Kennan have on the way our foreign policy was conducted? Isn't he responsible for the, the policy of, of pressure maneuver and diplomacy known as containment? Yes, George Kennan is famously known as the godfather of containment, which was to uh, essentially create uh, a counterforce to the Iron Curtain uh, so that they would, uh, they, the Soviets, would go no, no further west. Uh, what's not generally known about George Kennan, I wrote his obit, by the way, in the New York Times. He died at 101 uh, in 2005. What's not known about George Kennan is that he is also the godfather of the clandestine service of the CIA. Uh, the um, uh, not just the spies who do espionage, but uh, the covert operations officers who went on to 
uh, run coups uh, and buy uh, the loyalties or rent the loyalties of kings and prime ministers and potentates and up-and-coming political leaders all over the world. Stalin's claims that the West was uh, conspiring to surround his nation with enemies was dismissed at the time as paranoid. Were they? Uh, well, Stalin was paranoid, uh, but that mm. paranoia lives on in the mind of Vladimir Putin. And of course, even paranoids have enemies. You know, the Russian mindset he is really framed by the invasions of Napoleon and Adolf Hitler. Um, and so they constructed a garrison state um, uh, and uh, used uh, what we call the captive nations of East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, the Baltic states, as a kind of a human shield uh, against the fear of military attack uh, from the NATO alliance of the United States and Western Europe. Uh, how effective was the Voice of America as a propaganda tool? Uh, because well, today, States, today, aren't we using cyber warfare? Uh, which turns out to be a lot more effective? Well, first, Radio Free Europe, we need to talk about. Radio Free Europe uh, was created by the CIA in 1950 and broadcast news salted with propaganda uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, the Voice of America uh, was not a CIA front at all, and uh, it found that uh, its most... Uh, effective tool of propaganda was music, was jazz. Uh, jazz penetrated the minds of uh, the people of Poland, of East Germany, of Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Russia. Uh, and uh, it uh, not only uh, gave them joy, uh, jazz was the music of liberation. Uh, it was an African-American music. Um, and it... it uh, 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 was used by the Voice of America uh, to convey the impression that America was not a racist, racist society. Uh, by the way, uh, by World War II, Stalin already had spies at work in the United States, in the State Department, the Justice Department, the Manhattan Project. Um, and at its height, the KGB was the largest spy network in the world. Uh, it's where Putin later got his training. But how effective were all of those spies? The penetration of the government of the United States by uh, the KGB and its predecessors um, was really staggering. Let me tell you a story. Uh, you ever been down on the corner of Pitt and Grand Street on the Lower East Side? Sure. Uh, there's a one-block uh, plaza there called Samuel Dickstein Plaza. Samuel Dickstein was an American congressman elected uh, to serve the Lower East Side, and he served from 1922 to 1945. He became the chairman of uh, the House Immigration and Naturalization Committee. In 1937, Samuel Dickstein walked into the Soviet embassy in Washington, sat down with the Soviet ambassador, and offered him his services. He would sell fake passports to Soviet spies for $3,000 a pop and for an annual salary of $25,000, which was three times what he made as a United States congressman. 
He was uh, what we call an agent of influence, a person in a position of power or authority who uses that power to uh, affect public opinion or sway public policy uh, in favor of the country that's running it. Dick Stein also held uh, years of hearings uh, targeting uh, Stalin's enemies in the United States. Dick Stein got away with it. His uh, file finally turned up in the KGB archives in 1999. Wow. He was buried with honor. And, of course, uh, as I say, if you're down on Benton Grand in lower Manhattan, you're standing in Samuel Dick Stein Plaza. To this day. The President of the United States, Mr. Lopez, is similarly an agent of influence for Russia, which is a national security crisis of the highest order. You're saying that Trump is actually an agent of influence, uh, not just an somebody agent of who, influence, who person is in grateful to of for the help that Putin gave him. Well, look, it's no secret that the president of the United States kowtows to Vladimir Putin. It is no secret that he has kissed Putin's ring. It is no secret that. Uh, when they stood together in Helsinki and they were asked uh, who uh, and how Russians had uh, manipulated our elections four years ago, Donald Trump said, well, you know, my intelligence services tell me it was Russia. I have Putin standing here next to me. He says it's not Russia. I don't see any reason why it should be Russia. It is no secret that Donald Trump today and his vice president last night are parroting Russian disinformation to uh, smear Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. They're doing it in the open. The question is why Trump does it. Why Trump serves Putin as an agent of influence. And there are several theories of the case. He uh, Would you also, like to hear them? <laughs> sure, but he also said that Kamala Harris uh, will... Uh, if uh, when Joe Biden, uh, when she takes over for Joe Biden, will turn this into a communist country. Um, he's obviously got Russia and the Soviet Union on his mind a lot. Very much so. But, but um, let me first tell people who you are and what the show is. And sure. then it's, uh, uh, by the way, the last name rhymes. The last name rhymes with Finder. Or OK, Tim, Tim Weiner. OK, my guess is Tim Weiner, whose latest book is sixth is The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and the Political and Political Warfare, 1945 to 2020, uh, published by Henry Holt. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate, and the show is called Leonard Lopate at Large. Okay, so uh, back to Donald Trump and, uh, <laughs> and, and Putin. So uh, as we were saying, uh, Trump acts as an agent of influence by parroting Russian propaganda and disinformation, by uh, saying nothing when Russians put bounties on the troop, heads of troops of American soldiers in Afghanistan, by destroying America's uh, alliances uh, overseas, uh, by hammering at the pillars of American national security. That's no secret. The mystery is why. Now, I have talked to uh, many, many 
CIA and FBI counterintelligence specialists uh, in uh, recent weeks about this. There are several theories of the case. One, money, because isn't it always about the money with Trump? Uh, thanks to uh, a great reporting by my old newspaper, the New York Times, we now know that Trump is $421 million in debt. Most of that debt he owes personally, not the Trump org, him. And it's coming due in a couple of years. Who does he owe the money to? Is it Russia? Is it Russians? Is it Kremlin-linked oligarchs? Is it money laundered, Russian money laundered through Deutsche Bank? That would be nice to know. And we will find out because the Manhattan DA is about to get his hands on Trump's tax and financial records. We will find that out. So we're still learning about Putin's meddling in the 2016 American presidential campaign. Uh, I always assumed that his opposition to Hillary Clinton was in retaliation for what she had done when she was Barack Obama's secretary of state. That is correct. Uh, so, uh, ha but that has nothing to do with Donald Trump receiving money from the Russians, although um, Russian intelligence smeared Hillary Clinton on social media, praised uh, Jill Stein, the third party candidate, and Clinton actually accused Stein of being a Russian asset. Was that fair? Well, Jill Stein, uh, you'll probably remember that famous photograph of Jill Stein and Mike Flynn, General Flynn, who became Trump's, briefly, became Trump's national security advisor and is now fighting to stay out of jail, uh, sitting at the 10th with Vladimir Putin at the 10th anniversary of RT, the Russian propaganda outlet. Uh she, their radio uh, and television outlets. That's correct. Hmm. Um, she uh, made more than 100 appearances on RT uh, during her campaign, and she consistently mouthed uh, Kremlin uh, party lines. Uh, she, like Flynn, uh, was not averse to uh, taking Russian money and support uh, on behalf of uh uh, presidential campaign. So, uh, did she get direct support from Putin? There's no evidence of that. Not like Donald Trump did. Actually, didn't Russia's internal research agency begin its campaign to influence American political views and, and, and to sow dissension in the spring of 2014? Why then? That was yeah, even you're before Donald Trump declared for the presidency. Yeah, that's the Internet Research Agency you're talking about, uh, yeah. commonly thought of as, as a troll farm, although it was quite more than that. Uh, they got backed, a lot of trolls. Uh, Kremlin, yeah, backed by Kremlin oligarchs and supported by the Russian intelligence services. Um, well, Trump had, you know, I'd effectively been running for president since 2011 and uh, oh. when he started his uh, racist birther uh uh, smear on Barack Obama. Um, and he uh, formally declared in 2015. The goal initially of the Russian intelligence operation was to create chaos. And when Donald Trump declared his candidacy in 2015, they found the chaos candidate. Now, uh, it's kind of... Uh 
it's interesting that the uh, IRA, the Internal Research Agency, was largely financed by a close confidant of Putin, the oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is a former pimp. Yeah, well, politics really has strange how, bedfellows, here's doesn't how it? Things roll. Here's how things roll in Putin's Russia. Putin has created an intelligence state in which a coalition of uh, present and former uh, Russian intelligence officers, crooked uh, money men, uh, organized crime bosses, and uh, this is an untranslatable Russian word, the Suloviki, uh, which is essentially uh, the people with the guns and money, okay, run everything. And the way that Putin projects power, I mean, Russia is a weak state. Its economy is a fraction of the size of California's. You say it's so the smaller than, than Italy's. Power. Right. It's, it's, its economy is the smaller than Italy, they, even though it's a huge country. Yeah, with nuclear weapons. Um, and the way they project power, the way that Putin has been projecting power for most of the past two decades is the KGB officers who came to power with him essentially seized the wealth of Russia, the extractive wealth from oil and gas and minerals. They've used this money to corrupt Western institutions and politicians. They project their power, as the CIA did during the Cold War, with money, buying people, buying buildings, laundering cash, to get to people like Donald Trump. But you said, okay, go ahead, finish, I'm sorry. All right, and the projection of power is not merely through cyber warfare, spear phishing, uh, uh, hacking and dumping the eternal documents of the Democratic National Committee. It is by corrupting Western institutions and Western politicians who are all too willing to be corrupted. Going back to the CIA, uh, and, and actually the earlier part of your book, um, you, you, well, you wrote another book, the National Book Award-winning history of the CIA called Legacy of Ashes. And in that you wrote that there were um, covert uh, military actions and dirty tricks by the US in the decades following World War II, but most of them failed. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, because examples other than he didn't uh, the, know uh, how to run an intelligence service, Leonard. That the CIA was stood up in 1947. We had no experience in these matters, right? In running covert operations, and you know, secrecy and deception are not our strong suits as, as Americans. Um, so there was a lot of learning by doing in the early years, in the first two decades uh, of the CIA's existence in the 50s and 60s. And the CIA was continuously done in by Soviet deception operations. I will give you an example. Poland was seized by the Soviet Union at the end of World War II, held captive. And the CIA began to get word 
1947 and 1948 that there was a liberation army inside of Poland called the Freedom and Independence Movement. Its initials in Polish were W-I-N, WIN. WIN got word to the CIA that, that, that if the CIA sent them guns and money and people and radios and spy gear, that they could put together a 20,000-man paramilitary force and take down the Soviet puppet government in Poland. The CIA said, hot damn. And over the next two, three years into 1952, sent dozens of recruited Polish agents that they had, they had trained, Polish exiles that they had trained in Germany, parachuted them behind the Iron Curtain into Poland, sent them pallets of guns, sent them $5 million of cash and gold in the hopes that this Liberation Army could take down the Soviet puppet government in Poland. And what the was the president at the time? That was Harry Truman. Oh, wow. Okay. And the... Polish state radio came up on the air at the end of 1952 and gleefully announced that WIN was a deception operation controlled by the Soviet and Polish intelligence service. There was no WIN. It was an illusion. It was a deception. And you can guess what happened to the dozens of brave Polish agents who parachuted behind the Iron Curtain, into the waiting arms of the KGB. And they gleefully announced, remember I told you about the Italian operation in 1948, mm -hmm. the Italian job, and the Polish government gleefully announced it was taking the CIA's $5 million in gold and sending it to the Italian Communist Party. There were deception operations all over the world that suckered the CIA and its recruited foreign agents and some of its own American officers into these death traps, into these suicide missions. Well, you mentioned earlier that the Red Army also crushed revolts in East Germany, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. Had the U.S. encouraged those revolts? Radio Free Europe definitely encouraged the Hungarian people to rise up in 1958 without a single barest hope that the United States would do anything to help them. Did the U.S. have In other words, of an oh, the Radio ahead. Free Europe said, rise up, brave, brave people of Hungary. But the United States was not prepared to give them help when they rose up and they were crushed. What about... Uh, Solidarity. Did the U.S. have much of an impact uh, when it supported the solidarity movement in Poland in the 1980s when Ronald well, Reagan was president? Well, that is a great story, Leonard. And not only do I tell it in the book, The Folly and the Glory, but I've started a podcast based on the book called mm -hmm. Whirlwind. And episode three of Whirlwind, which is out this week, is precisely about this. A 10-episode so, uh, series podcast. correct. So episode three is, is about this amazing operation. So for 30 years after the disaster of the WIN operation that I just told you about, um, the CIA and indeed the United States uh, 
dream that, you know, the polls are really, really independent. They never succumbed to Stalin. Uh, Stalin himself said the polls, nah, the polls are too independent for communism. Communism fits them like a saddle fits a cow. <laughs> and so uh, those of your listeners over a certain age, like me and you, will remember that solidarity rose up in Poland 40 years ago, 40 years ago, as a trade union movement in the shipyards of Gdansk. And the leader of that movement was Lech Wawensa. Who, a man I've interviewed, by the way. That's right. And, um, you know, they wanted a fair shake and they, they wanted democracy. And so the Soviets ordered uh, the Polish general who's running Poland to crush solidarity and institute martial law. So what the CIA did was actually quite brilliant. They saw a chance that they could support solidarity against, you know, in their dark hour under martial law. And they weren't going to do it with guns like they'd done the last time. They were going to smuggle the tools of a free press into Poland. And over the next seven years, the CIA smuggled paper, ink, printing presses, fax machines, computers, radio technology for an underground uh, radio solidarity network. And this brilliant little device that allowed solidarity to break in to the state-run news program at 7 o'clock. So imagine this, Leonard. You're sitting in your apartment in Warsaw in 1985, and the 7 o'clock news comes on, and it's a gray man in a gray suit reading, you know, the latest figures on tractor production, you know, the meeting of the five-year quota on coal. And suddenly, across the screen, it says, Solidarity Lives. (laughs) Tune in to Radio Solidarity at this frequency in a half an hour. That's a pretty neat trick. And I'm not saying the CIA kept solidarity alive. Solidarity kept solidarity alive. But this helped. And, you know, solidarity eventually won. Solidarity and Lech Valencia became the leaders of Poland. And that was the domino. That happened before the Berlin Wall came down. That was the domino that led to the collapse of the Soviet Empire. And we'll get back to that after we take a little break. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. United forever in friendship and labor, our mighty republics will ever endure. The great Soviet Union will live through the ages, the dream of a people, their fortress secure. Long live our Soviet motherland. 
built by the people's mighty hand. Long live our people, united and free, strong in a friendship pride by pride. Paul Robeson singing the uh, Soviet national anthem. Uh, before we get back to my conversation with Tim Weiner, I need to take a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard's Opaid at Large and is financially able to step up right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep the one-hour deep dives that we bring you on Leonard's Opaid at Large coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There, listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, whatever, uh, to a month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. And anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website give2wbai.org will receive a free copy of my guest Tim Weiner's book The Folly and the Glory America Russia and Political Warfare 1945 to 2020 it's our way of saying thanks for being among the many listeners who support this show in fact listeners are our only source of support because WBAI does not take grant money or corporate sponsorships of any kind. But whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is that you step up right now to give us that support so we can continue to bring you these long form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. Why not make that call today at 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to wbai.org and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this show, thank you very much. And now I'm returning to our guest, Tim Weiner, whose uh, latest book, his sixth, uh, is The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare, 1945 to 2020. Uh, Mr. Weiner is the winner of both a National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. His book is published by Henry Holt. Maybe we can go back again to the beginning, uh, to, to some of the earlier days. Um, well, first of all, what, have, what, have, what about the 1953 CIA-backed coup in Iran that returned the Shah to the throne uh, under President Eisenhower? Had Stalin already died during that year? Yeah, I mean... What was their response? What was the... The way, uh, the, the way the, in which the coups of the 1950s were framed, Iran, Guatemala, the attempted coup in Indonesia in 1958, were that these nations had somehow gone over to the socialist or communist side through the uh, ignorance of their own people who had voted in, in free elections, their candidates, uh, And uh, the United States was not going to let a country like Iran, with its vast oil holdings, go over to the socialist side without a bitter fight. These early operations 
were incredibly slapdash um, and succeeded essentially by accident. Um, and, you know, they had long-lasting consequences, however, that were not slapstick at all. Guatemala to, is still suffering go, go ahead. under... Guatemala is still suffering mm. uh, the consequences of that coup. Uh, the Shah, who we installed on the Peacock's throne as a bulwark against communism in the Middle East, uh, ruled through fierce fear um, uh, and the savage work of his intelligence service, Savak, which was a creature of the CIA, until he was overthrown by the Ayatollahs more than 40 years ago, and we are still living with the consequences of that. Um, the idea that you can change history through covert action is very intoxicating. Covert action, coups, regime changes have consequences that no one can foresee. After Stalin died, there was a period known as de-Stalinization and the Khrushchev thaw. What effect did that have on U.S.-Soviet relations? Well, you know, President Eisenhower had only been in office for a matter of weeks when uh, uh, Joe Stalin died. And he exploded in rage uh, to his closest aides and said, OK, so Stalin's dead. And we have no idea what to do. We have no plan. We have no uh, uh, idea about how to deal with a Soviet Union without Stalin. You can comb the secret archives of this government. You won't find a piece of paper that tells us what we should do to deal with a Soviet Union that is not run by Joseph Stalin. So after a power struggle, uh, Nikita Khrushchev became the general secretary, and Eisenhower tried to wage peace with Nikita Khrushchev, not war. And he was getting somewhere in the last year of his presidency. They were going to have a peace summit in 1960. And maybe they were going to, you know, find a way to reduce the huge nuclear arsenals that both sides had built. Tens of thousands of warheads that could annihilate the earth a thousand times over. And just as they were getting ready to take off for this peace summit uh, in Paris, if I remember, the CIA sent a U-2 spy plane <laughs> over the Soviet Union. And Eisenhower had wanted them to you know, stand down these flights in anticipation of this peace summit. And, of course, the U-2 was shot down. Uh, and the pilot lived. Um, and, you know, the CIA put out a cover story saying it was you know, a weather observatory plane that had drifted off course because the pilot had suffered hypoxia. They didn't know that the pilot was alive. And so Khrushchev then gleefully springs up and says, oh, yeah, really? A weather observation plane? This is a spy plane, and here's the captured CIA pilot. Well, this ruined the chances for peace, and Eisenhower fell into a state of rage and despair at the end of his presidency, feeling that he had accomplished very little on that front. And he set off to try and clean up the messes that he was going to leave for the next president, who was either going to be John F. Kennedy or Richard M. Nixon. 
And these clean-up operations included assassinations that the CIA was supposed to carry out. He targeted, among other people, Fidel Castro. Now, at the same time, when Eisenhower was president, the Soviet Union took the, the lead in the space race. Did, what impact did that have on the U.S.-Soviet relations? Well, you know, the space race is all very good and glorious, but there, there are two reasons for building rockets that powerful. And one is to launch nuclear weapons from your homeland to your enemy's homeland. And that was the hidden agenda of both countries' space race. Yeah, it would be nice to put a ban on the moon, but it'd be great to build thousands of rockets that could serve as intercontinental ballistic missiles. And when the Soviets took the lead by putting Sputnik up in space, it wasn't just a matter of the U- U.S. Le- losing face. It was a fear that we could be annihilated. Now, the when the Soviet Union finally collapsed uh, in 1989, um, there were all sorts of reasons, um, including uh, the fact that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's reforms had largely failed. Um, the uh, they, were, they had attempted to match U.S. military spending, and that was difficult. Uh, but uh, you're, you seem to be arguing in the book that the U.S. mishandled the collapse of Soviet style communism uh, in 1989 by rubbing Russia's nose in its failures and proclaiming that democracy had demonstrated its superiorities. So are well, we still feeling the consequences Union, of that? Yeah, this, the Soviet Union didn't collapse when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. It really collapsed when the KGB tried to mount a coup against Gorbachev in the summer of 1991. Hmm. Um, the coup failed, uh, but the result was that, uh, you know, an old Communist Party apparatchik named Boris Yeltsin uh, became the leader of the new Russia. Well, Yeltsin knew about much as much about democracy as I know about theoretical astrophysics. But the new president of the United States, Bill Clinton, thought he could, by charm and cajolery, uh, kind of kind of nudge Boris Yeltsin toward democracy. Charm, cajolery, and you know, billions of dollars of, of loans from the from the IMF. Um, so a bunch of you know, young, fresh-faced pro-democracy activists working for the U.S. government uh, started piling into Russia. And, um, you know, I'm sure they were all well-intentioned, and the idea that Russia could become a democracy was very alluring. Uh, But the Russian people began to feel like lab rats in in an experiment run by white-coated Americans. It was also a financial collapse, wasn't there? Uh, it was a, it, it, a depression that was even worse than the 1930s. Yes, that's right. The financial collapse under Yeltsin due to his mismanagement was, in fact, worse than, than the Great Depression in the United States. Was part of the problem so, that the, the corruption component. and also the, uh, the, the, the failure to, to quell the Mujahideen insurgency in Afghanistan throughout the 1980s? Uh, which uh, you suggest might have been something of a Cold War era proxy war with the U.S., one of the the countries that was supporting the Mujahideen? Yeah, the Soviet defeat in in Afghanistan in 1989 was sort of their Vietnam, or that's how we intended it to be, because we were sending billions of dollars of weapons to uh, uh, the Afghan uh, 
uh, rebels. Uh, uh, and, of course, that was another covert operation of the CIA that had abundant and unanticipated consequences. Because Afghanistan, a country I have visited seven times as a reporter, starting with the Soviet occupation and ending with the American occupation 15 years later, um, uh, became uh, you know home first to the Taliban and, and then to al-Qaeda. And we know what happened next. But going back to what happened to Russia in the 1990s, so on the one hand, Bill Clinton is trying to sweet talk Yeltsin into becoming a Democrat and praising him and comparing him to Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And that's all very well and good. On the other hand, the United States is embracing Poland and East Germany. Sorry, the unified Germany. Uh, Which was a humiliating uh, experience for the, the Russians as well. Totally. And Germany and had reunited. Right. And then embracing Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic into the NATO military alliance. And by the time that happens in 1999, Putin's taking over from Yeltsin. And Putin sees this. He's correct in seeing NATO as a military alliance, which 12 days after Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic joined it, started bombing the bejesus out of Belgrade in Serbia to dislodge the madman, genocidal maniac Slobodan Milosevic, who was a great ally of Russia. Um, this wasn't a theoretical construct. This was NATO in an act of war um, with a thousand warplanes, most of them Americans, but also including the first combat missions flown by the German Air Force since 1945. Um, so... You know, that got Putin's back up. Uh, not that I have any sympathy for him, but if you saw that through his eyes, you would see the West rising up to corral and roll back Russian power. Well, you note that in 1990, James Baker, George H.W. Bush's Secretary of State, promised Russia to never expand NATO to the east. And then, of course, uh, as you're pointing out, broke that promise. But hadn't Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland pushed for admission into NATO as early as nineteen Absolutely. as May nineteen ninety two before Clinton even became president? Uh I gotta check my dates on that, but you know I one, checked them. I think it's true. What okay. Um yeah, sure. No question about it. And I'm not saying that they were wrong. Of course they wanted to join the West. But you have to see this the way that the Russians saw it, okay, to understand the force and the ferocity of the long game that Putin is playing to push back against that, which he's been doing for the better part of 20 years. And since he couldn't do it with a, a, a limited economy, uh, he uh, has, you, since he's a former KGB agent, he uh, has been using uh, cyber warfare and uh, other intelligence uh, approaches uh, to to win, although I'm not exactly sure what he wants to win. China uh, is a much more powerful economic force in the world right now. What is he yeah, hoping to do? i Putin wants to win. Excuse me? I'll tell you. Because I, I just want to point you. out one other thing. 
when when uh, Vladimir Putin succeeded Boris Yeltsin as president in 2000, didn't he promise to make Russia great again? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that when I when I read that, I thought, gee, was the creation of the MAGA slogan just an odd coincidence? There are no coincidences, Leonard. Um, no, look. The form of warfare that Putin is waging, of political warfare, has been test-driven. The warfare that he's waging on us, the United States. It was test-driven in Ukraine in 2014 when Putin severed the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine without firing a shot by taking down their computer and communications networks, okay? When the Ukrainians tried to hold a presidential election six years ago at the end of 2014, Putin and, and his cyber warriors broke into the Central Election Commission's computers and made it look like a fringe pro-Putin right-wing nut had won the presidential election. And that result went out over all the Russian media networks, television, radio, internet, and around the world. And it took a frantic hour of work back in Kiev before they kicked the Russians out of their computer systems. They can do that to us in 26 days mm. and worse if they want to create chaos. I mean, this would be the culmination of a long program of political warfare waged by Russia against the United States. The capacity of the Russians to create chaos on election day, their capabilities are enormous. And what do they gain we by it? We have to be prepared for that. Chaos, Leonard, by making us look even like even more of a failed democracy, or I should say a failing democracy, by like making us look like even more of a failing democracy than we are right now, hmm. to, to pit us against each other, to create chaos. Now, Trump is a very good chaos agent all his own, okay? But if they can, and they have the capability of doing this, Okay. We do not know their intentions. They have the capability of scrambling computers and worse, taking down the electrical grid of a major American city on Election Day. How would the computer counts, which are ultimately done by the Associated Press, how would those computer counts get done under a major cyber attack that brought down not only computer systems, but an electrical grid. This is the nightmare that American intelligence and national security officials are scrambling to pre prevent as we speak. And it would be the culmination of a long Russian political warfare operation against American democracy. And we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, we've run out of time. But thank you so much, Tim Weiner. It's been fascinating. Tim Weiner, winner of the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. Um, he has a new uh, 
series of podcasts. Uh, how do people access that? Is it on the regular it's places? It's called Whirlwind, and you get them wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, the book is The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare in 1945 to, to 2020. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you hear and want to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. Plus, you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, learnedlocatedlarge.com. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off, I want to just take one last moment to ask you for your support for the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this thing going. Please step up right now and, and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to our website, give to wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of the show, we will send you a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare, 1945-2020 by my guest, Tim Weiner. So make that call, 516-620-3602. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when activist Sean King will join us to discuss his book, Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression, and Own Our Future. We'll see you then.